welcome to episode 69 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi, and the featured interview for this episode was recorded by Peter Lim on the road at the African Studies Association meeting in Philadelphia with Professor Toby Green. I'm Peter Lim, podcasting at the African Studies Association annual conference here in Philadelphia, and my special guest is Dr. Toby Green of King's College London. His 2007 doctorate was from the Centre of West African Studies at Birmingham University on the New Christians in Cape Verde, after which he held a British Academy postdoctoral research fellowship at Birmingham and then came to King's College in 2010 as a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow and in 2013 begins a lectureship there in Lusophone African History and Culture. I'm also joined by Professor Walter Hawthorne of Michigan State University, who has featured twice before in this series. Dr. Green earlier published very successful travel and history books translated into 10 languages. His books include Saddled with Darwin, A Journey Through South America, Meeting the Invisible Man, Secrets and Magic in West Africa, both from Wiedenfeld and Nicholson in 1999 and 2001, Inquisition, The Reign of Fear, published in London by Macmillan in 2007, and his latest has recently been published by Cambridge University Press, The Rise of the Transatlantic Slave Trade in Western Africa, 1300 to 1589, and to this we can add yet another, an edited volume from Oxford and the British Academy, Brokers of Change, Atlantic Commerce and Cultures in Pre-Colonial Western Africa. His wide research interests embrace West African engagement with the early Atlantic world and mercantilism, trans-Saharan and transatlantic diasporas, Atlantic slavery, creolization, new Christians and Iberian empires, African economic and labor history, links between Brazil and Africa, and history of race in the Atlantic world. Dr. Green is also Director of Institutional Relations of the Emilcar Cabral Institute of Economic and Political Research on Guinea-Bissau, affiliated to the UK All-Party Parliamentary Group on Guinea-Bissau. He's also a member of the Council of the African Studies Association of the UK. Welcome, Dr. Toby Green. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And welcome also to Professor Walter Hawthorne. Thank you, Peter. Toby, how did you come to write in this area in general, briefly? It's a long story, but I'll try and make it brief. I originally became interested in the area as a, an area of the world in its own right. I, I had a previous career as a, a journalist and a travel writer. I wrote a book about Guinea-Bissau and Senegal, which came out in 2001. And... As I was writing the book and researching it, I became more and more interested in the, the history of the region. So that was what prompted me to go to grad school in, in Britain at, at Birmingham University with Paolo de Moraes Farias, the specialist on Timbuktu and Songhai. Mm. But as a Brazilian, he's got particular interest as well in the Lusophone issues. So right. that was one of the... He was a, a very good advisor for me. And that was where I started, really, uh, in, in that developing that historical interest in, and the interest I had in that region. And then, and then from there, one of the things which comes across when you delve into into the history of this region is the extremely interconnected nature of the, of the peoples of the region and the way that this relates to both Atlantic issues but also I think issues going further back in history with the Trans-Saharan trade and that's one of the reasons that I ended up taking the, the approach and the time frame that I did in the book. Mm. Can you talk Toby, a little bit about that time frame. I recently taught your book to a graduate seminar, and what the students found remarkable 
or one of the things the students found remarkable is that most histories of Atlantic slavery in the Atlantic begin sometime in the 16th century and then mm-hmm. move forward. Um, mm-hmm. What your book does is begin in the 1300s. Right. So, so why uh, this time frame? Well, it's, it's an unfortunate confusion in some ways. The book is called The Rise of the Transatlantic Slave Trade in Western Africa. And as I think you know, Walter, that wasn't the original title. The original title was, the original title of my PhD, Masters of Difference, and the subtitle was Creolization and the Rise of the Transatlantic Slave Trade in Western Africa. And the idea was to show how cultural formations, which went back beyond the era of Atlantic trade into the long-distance Trans-Saharan trade, how those formations influenced the ways in which European traders, when they arrived in the 15th century, were able to integrate into Atlantic African communities and and how trading communities were formed. So it was a way of interconnecting different cultural formations over a long time period. That's why the book starts in the 1300s, and it's that connection of the the Trans-Saharan patterns and the ways in which those influenced cultural formation in this part of Africa in Upper Guinea and the way that that then influenced the subsequent Atlantic trade. That's the sort of connection I'm trying to draw there. And you mentioned the cultural framework, although you also make some remarkable adjustments in the quantitative sphere, but do you, you plump for the cultural framework. Why? Well, I, I think the, the, the quantitative approach, which has been pioneered, and, and really, you know, this goes right the way back to Phil Curtin mm. in, the, in the late 60s. And, and, of course, at that time, trying to pin down those kind of more precise approach to these kinds of issues was, was a relevant thing to do. But uh, as I say in the book, I think in some ways that that whole approach has kind of sidelined other issues, which were of equal and in many ways more importance in terms of the, the long-term ways in which African societies and communities were responded to and create the impacts of the Atlantic slave trade, but also uh, created new communities and new identities. And those identities fundamentally relate to cultural issues and not economic issues. So that would be one of the main reasons why I, I think that approach is, is important. At the same time, I think one of the things that the book does also show is that cultural frameworks are very much connected to economic frameworks at the, at the time. But how those cultural aspects had tended to be underplayed by the quantitative approach, uh, which had been ongoing since the 60s. There are um, a lot of, of course, studies coming out now about the Atlantic slave trade. And, well, I mean, one conclusion that's that's very obvious is that most slaves are ex- exported from West Central Africa. Yeah. Now, this book, your book, is situated very much in Upper Guinea, mm-hmm. which, over the long term of the slave trade, produced certainly compared to Angola, relatively few slaves. Mm-hmm. Yet, I think one of the important things about your book is this: how it, it really emphasizes the role of Upper Guinea and the foundation of mm-hmm. this slave trading period. Can you mm-hmm. can you flesh out some of that? The sort of sure, I mean, mo- moving the lens away from Angola and toward Upper Guinea. I mean, I think um, one of the things about this period, and and, and to come back to your point, Peter, about the, the quantitative data I do produce in the book, I mean, one of the things I, I show is that there has generally been an underestimate mm. of, the, of the impact of this 16th century trade in Upper Guinea. And one of the important things is, is really uh, to, bring, to bring out that in this period, which is the formative period of these connections, that the transatlantic trade is very much concentrated in, in Upper Guinea. And, that, and, there's, and I put a lot of evidence in the book about that. And, and how the, uh, the West Central African dimension uh, really begins in the late 1570s, the 1580s, in the, tra- in the transatlantic context. Of course, in, in, in the trade from uh, West Central Africa to Portugal, the Congo in particular, that, that was important in the 16th century. But in terms of seeing how cultural frameworks, which is what 
my approach looks at in the book, which developed in these early Atlantic trading communities, then might have influenced cultural formations in the transatlantic dimension, so in, in the Americas as well. That's why I think that Upper Guinea in this period is particularly important, because this is the region where those connections are beginning to be formed. And at the same time, I also talk about in the book, and towards the end of it, how there are also connections developing between Upper Guinea and West Central Africa in this period as well. So, for example, ships going from Congo to Portugal stop in uh, Upper Guinea to buy provisions. How there are, there are clear other, clearly other types of connection which are linking those regions. So, how cultural formations developing in Upper Guinea and also in West Central Africa were interconnected at this time, and that's why looking at the transatlantic dimension and the importance of Upper Guinea in that in this period is important. A, a fascinating aspect of your remarkable book to me is, is the emphasis on creolization and the, mm-hmm. the, the formation of creole communities in Western Africa, if we can use that phrase of George Brooks, mm-hmm. dear friend. And uh, part of this was the involvement of, of Jewish merchants. Mm-hmm. And you've, in other writings recently, you've drawn attention to some of the interesting byways of this, including the Inquisition in Africa mm-hmm. and how some traders were charged with wearing African uh, dress. Uh, tell us a little bit about this curious history of, of Jewish it? traders. And well, I mean, it's a complicated history. I mean, uh, these are new Christians. Some of them, uh, so you have this backstory of the history of the Jews in Iberia in the 15th century, which is one of where many of them were forced to convert to Christianity and were, became what's known as crypto-Jews, so they hid their Jewish identity, their Jewish beliefs, under a cloak of overt uh, conversion to Christianity and uh, Catholicism. And that was a particular case in Portugal. In Portugal, Whereas in Spain, uh, the Jews were expelled from Spain, in, in Portugal, the Jews were not allowed to leave, so they all had to convert to uh, Catholicism in the late 15th century. Now, the relevance of that is that these communities of new Christians or ex-Jews or crypto-Jews had a very flexible identity. They were, on the one hand, some of them were crypto-Jews, some of them were devout Catholics, and some of them were atheists. Um, but often, and often they were more than one, and they had to pretend to be one. So there's that flexibility of identity. What I argue in the book is that flexibility of identity was then very important in how these communities of traders were then able to integrate into Af- communities in Upper Guinea at this time, because the ability to be both African, both trading with African uh, networks, but trading with uh, European Atlantic networks, acquired a kind of flexibility of cultural identity, which with the rise of the Inquisition in in the Iberian world in the 16th century, and of a more rigid uh, formulation of identity related to old old Christians, as it's called, so Catholic and Catholic doctrinal issues related to the Council of Trent, which is in the 1550s. With all of that, that kind of flexibility appears to have been something which those new Christians, it came easier to the new Christians and to other Iberian traders at the time, and that helped them to, f- to help form uh, these uh, Creole communities. On the other hand, you have what the book shows is you have this integration of those communities with a much older what Wilson Trojan Fugel, the Brazilian scholar, calls primary Creolization of uh, interconnected uh, communities of Upper Guinea have developed very interconnected uh, and intercultural communities, partly related to the impact of the long-distance trans-Saharan trade and the way in which incoming diaspora traders were able to integrate into those communities. So you have two creolizations, if you like, which I argue in the book combined to form this Atlantic creole community. A lot of the listeners to this podcast are, um, are often graduate students or folks early in their career thinking about projects, thinking about sources. Can you talk a little bit about the source base that you <laughs> use, which is incredible and spans multiple continents, but that you use to, to study the early Atlantic? Right. 
The sources are there, but they can be difficult. I use uh, three, I suppose, major sources. So the first sources I use are Inquisition sources. Uh, the Inquisition sources, which are very revealing on these on these mixed communities, really, which developed in Upper Guinea in the 15, by the 1540s. So you have Inquisition cases. So it's, it's usually thought, the Inquisition is usually thought of as something which only affects Iberia, but actually it was taken into the uh, Iberian colonies. So you have Inquisition cases from the 1540s and the 1550s in what is now Guinea-Bissau and also in the Cape Verde Islands. And those cases are very revealing about the type, the ways in which, and, and these cases are taken against the new Christian community who are said to be heretical because they have uh, apostatized from their conversion to Christianity and have taken up uh, Jewish beliefs again. Uh, and these cases are very revealing about the ways in which these mixed communities were formed, these multiple identities, which I talked about just now. And so they're very helpful in thinking about how these mixed trading communities developed in Upper Guinea. Uh, the second type of source I use, sources from the Archive of the Indies in Seville. So this is the colonial Latin American archive, which has got an enormous range of uh, material covering all of the former Spanish colonies in the New World. But they also have a, quite a lot of material which relates to the slave trade from from Upper Guinea in the 16th century. And also, even among those, among that data, you also find judicial cases which were taken for various reasons, usually in the New World, particularly in the island of Hispaniola, which, but which relate to events in Africa. So there's one particular case, for example, which is 570 folios, and which deals with the communities of Tangumau. So these were Cape Verdeans who had gone to live in Upper Guinea and had formed marriages with uh, African women and had formed families. And, and there's a whole 570-page uh, case which relates to those communities and also to the trading the trading routes which they or routes which they followed in um, in Upper Guinea, peoples they were trading with. Those kind of, so that kind of evidence is, is really important. And then the third type is uh, notarial records. So notarial records from the New World, so I work particularly in archives in Bogota, which allow you to form, which uh, notarial records of uh, the sales of enslaved Africans in the New World, which are often, particularly after the 1560s, uh, give the ethnonym of, of the Africans. And those allow you to form quite a detailed picture from the 1560s to the 1600s, which I do in the book, of which communities are particularly affected at which periods in this part of Africa. So with those different types of records, I, I also uh, do use the Oral History Archive in, in Gambia, in Banjul, which also has a, a lot of uh, important information about uh, oral sources. So combining all those records in a, in a sort of potpourri, uh, you, you end up, I, th I think that the different types of sources are very important because they offer different perspectives, and putting them all together, I think you do have a fairly rounded pers perspective on that period. Having decentered Angola, and I guess recentered Upper Guinea in the formative period of, of, the, of the creation of an Atlantic world, mm. I know for your next project, you're casting your eyes toward, I guess, what, what you've made the periphery, which is Angola. Can you talk about the direction of, uh, yeah, of, of, that, of that project? Yes, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I make it into a periphery. Uh, I, I, I would say that uh, it's more a case of re-centering Upper Guinea rather mm. than de-centering uh, West Central Africa. I mean, as you say, Walter, you know, anybody who studies this knows the importance of West Central Africa. There's, there's, but at the same time, the importance of Upper Guinea has tended to be understated, particularly in this early period. So that's, I think, what's important in that kind of context. 
Yes, I mean, if you go into uh, the 17th century, so my, my original graduate work actually ran up to the 1670s on Upper Guinea. Uh, so I've done quite a lot of research on that period already for this region. But if you go into the 17th century, the sorts of issues which I uh, look at in this book, which are to do with the formation of what I call pan-Atlantic communities, reciprocal influences between Africa and the Americas, which I argue in the book start incredibly early, even by the 1510s, and the ways in which those affect cultural formations and the impact of these processes of enslavement, uh, both in Africa and in the Americas, you, you can't avoid West Central Africa. You have to look at West Central Africa. There's a huge amount of material on West Central Africa, as, as is well known. So in uh, this project, what I'm hoping to do is to have, conduct a comparative analysis of Upper Guinea and West Central Africa in this period and look at the types of features, both African and broader Atlantic geopolitical issues and frameworks which influence the ways in which uh, these communities are formed, how they endure, but also how African communities, the different trajectories of different societies in Africa and how the different forces which are at play in those very different regions influence how this plays out in the long durée. So that's the new project. And uh, here at ASA, you gave a very interesting paper to do with commodity trade and inflation, mm-hmm. currencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you spoke about cloth and copper and iron in the Bight of Biafra. Mm-hmm. And, and this was in a panel on, uh, if you like, the new African economic history or the rise. Of, someone mentioned the rise and fall. I think it was Mamadou. That was Mamadou Diouf, yes. The rise and fall yeah. of African economic history. Could you just elaborate to the, to the listeners uh, some of the themes of this paper and maybe also your comments on, you know, where is African economic history going? Well, I mean, this was a very... For me, it was a very interesting panel, and it, it was what was really nice about it. I felt was it was a discuss- it was a genuine discussion about the uh, the idea of the panel, which I, uh, Rhiannon Stevens at Columbia and I sort of tried try to put together, was thinking about qualitative approaches to economic histories and the ways in which, in the case of my paper, the ways in which uh, something like currency, which is generally thought of in pretty quantitative terms, mm. can be also, a, can, like, you can actually have an intersection of quantitative and qualitative approaches, and how that might play out in in the region I looked at, which in this case was Ada and, and the Bight of Biafra, this isn't what obviously uh, West Central Africa. This has kind of grown out of the research I've been doing. The research I've been doing has involved research on Dutch, in Dutch archives, as, as well as other things. And, and those archives are actually quite rich in this area. And I just developed all this material. And I, and I just wanted to sort of try out some of the ideas I'm developing about offering a different type of perspective on changes in Atlantic Africa in this period. Because I think one of the things which, obviously, in the book I'm quite uh, strong about, the the difficulties of quantitative approaches to uh, to African economic histories in this period, and I think trying to think through different types of economic approaches is something which I think that might even be a third project, which I might take up at some point looking at. But I think the question of currency, I think it is very important, and it plays into some of the work which is happening now, for example, a recent book by Kwame Nimako and Glenn Williamson on the Dutch Atlantic, about the ways in which I think African economic histories in this period, part of the process of de-exceptionalizing African history, I think also has to involve seeing how African economic histories are part of global economic histories at this, in this period, mm-hmm. and that's one of the broader things that I'd, I'd want to look at in, in, in future research. And well, both of you are on the board of the uh, Amilcar Cabral Institute, ah. and it sort of raises the interesting question of the relationship of all this historical research to the peoples of Guinea-Bissau, yes. for instance, and maybe even contemporary events or, or memories of the slave trade. 
you have yes. a very interesting comment about one of your friends in Guinea-Bissau yes. about uh, uh, whether or not to talk about such matters. And yes. I just wondered if you would like to comment on the... the if you're, This is a series is called Africa, Past and Present. Yes. So having talked about the past, I wonder if you'd like to relate it to more recent times. Well, I mean, just to talk about that uh, story, is one of the first bits in the book, actually. I tell a story about how my friend said, you know, you're not a slave and I'm not a slave, so we need to forget that past. And I said, well, if we forget the past, the danger is that aspects of it are constantly repeated. And he said, but if I remember, I'm going to get angry. <laughs> when we look at this issue and, and the question of, well, for example, what influences do the history I look at here have in, for example, contemporary Guinea-Bissau? I think one of the things that uh, the book talks about is the way in which this period saw the reconfiguration of identities and the reconfiguration of lineages and the reconfiguration of ethnicities, in fact, in this region. So, for example, the Pepao, who are one of the larger groups within Guinea-Bissau today, uh, if you look at 16th century documents, you don't find Pepao. You only start finding them in the 17th century. Uh, you have Bram. Bram was a broader ethnonym which covered uh, peoples who are today Manjaku, uh, Pepao Mancanya. And so these, one of the things the book talks about is the way in which these identities were reconfigured in this period and the way in which the influences of both the internal changes within African societies and the ways in which those were interconnected to external forces produced those changes. One of the things this shows us is that ethnic identities are far from being, I mean this is something that Walter's written about as well, but are much more fluid in this period than perhaps is always acknowledged, and, and, and also that the types of identities that have formed certain divisions, for example, in contemporary Guinea-Bissau, you have the question of the balantization of the, of the army, and difficulties which other peoples in Guinea-Bissau have with the army, partly because of that uh, disjunction, and then you have well, the, the former Balanta president of uh, Guinea-Bissau, Kumbayala, who is a Balanta, and the way in which uh, he has negotiated those aspects point to a certain type of Balanto identity, which I think if you look at this earlier period is, is not so apparent. So I think one of the things that hopefully looking at this past histories can do is to help to reconfigure, the, uh, create a slightly more fluid understanding of, the, of those identities in the present form, which could have some, hopefully some benefit in the ways in which those hard divisions which have formed in some aspects of contemporary Guinea-Bissau could be alleviated. You've, um, returning to sources, you've, of course, have done work around the world. I sort of think about you, as have I, but I, I sort of think about you as somebody who's really rooted in Guinea-Bissau. You've, you've yes. spent a lot of time in the country. You've certainly done work in the rest of the region, and your scholarship focuses on the rest of the region. But I, I, I do know that you were recent, recently in the country uh, doing, doing some research. Yes. What do you see as the opportunities and the challenges right now of doing work in the country? Doing research in Guinea-Bissau? Well... I, I was there before, I mean, the, the crisis of this year. Uh, so I, w I haven't been there since the crisis in April. So when I was there, doing research in Guinea-Bissau is problematic in various ways. For example, at INEP, the National Research Institute, there is an amazing collection of sources, as Walter knows, uh, really back to the, almost to the 18th century, on, uh, particularly on the island of Bulama. But there are extraordinary challenges in terms of electricity, in terms of internet access, and in terms of, in terms of access to documentation for people in the country and for researchers going there. I mean, for example, even senior staff in NEP have a great amount of difficulty in accessing uh, even the internet. And this was before the problems of this year. So this is a major problem for particularly for researchers in Guinea-Bissau, but also for researchers going to Guinea-Bissau. I mean, for example, I, uh, one of my colleagues, Patrick Chabal, 
uh, PhD students in Guinea-Bissau in the last year, and, and they found it really very difficult to communicate with him. So that's a, a major problem. However, on the other hand, in terms of day-to-day research fieldwork, Guinea-Bissau is, as you know, Walter, quite an easy country to work in. People are very welcoming, it's easy to make connections, and in general people are quite willing to, are happy to talk. So as a place to do research, and, and in spite of all the problems there have been, especially since April, for example, this particular PhD student has managed to conduct her research even in this difficult period. So... It is a challenging place to do research. It certainly, you know, is a lot harder than, for example, Banjul, where I mentioned I worked in the Oral History Archive. It's a lot harder to work in Guinea-Bissau than in Banjul, for instance, and and I think in probably than most places across the, the West African region. But... I think it can be very rewarding because, especially in terms of fieldwork, I, I think that there are huge possibilities and relatively few barriers. Well, a, a very rich and interesting book and a very rich and interesting discussion. Thank you, uh, Dr. Green and Hawthorne, for talking to Africa Past and Present. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Our producer is Annette Jamino. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L, dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.